102.5 FM, KXSFLP San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. The National Human Trafficking Hotline in the U.S. saw a 20% increase last year in the victims and survivors who contacted for help. Each year, it's estimated that around 18,000 foreign nationals are trafficked into the United States. The number of U.S. citizens trafficked within the country each year is even higher, with an estimated 200,000 American children at risk for trafficking into the sex industry. What is happening and what can we do about it? Today I'm talking with Macon Cutter, Director of National Human Trafficking Hotline at Polaris, about the state of human and sex trafficking in the United States. She will share what is happening in the U.S. based on the data that Polaris is collecting and what we can do about it. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Megan. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Can you talk about what is going on with human trafficking, the scale of it? Absolutely. First, I'll just start by defining human trafficking just so that we're all on the same page. I think for a lot of us, that can be a term that feels sort of nebulous. There are two forms of trafficking. The first is sex trafficking, and the other form is labor trafficking. And sex trafficking is when someone is compelled to have sex for money or something else of value, or when someone under the age of 18 is involved in having sex for money. There's not that element of having to be compelled when someone is a child. And labor trafficking happens when someone is unable to leave their work situation without serious consequences to themselves or their loved ones. Essentially, they're not able to leave their job and they're kept there through force, fraud, or coercion. All of that said, human trafficking is definitely going on and and happening in the United States, and it's more common than people think. In 2019 alone, the trafficking hotline learned about 11,500 situations of trafficking, and that's likely only a portion of the scope of the crime and of the problem. These numbers only reflect those who know about a resource like the National Human Trafficking Hotline and those who feel safe calling or who are able to reach out. So that's just a snapshot of what we know about what's happening, but there's, of course, more that we don't know about. Is it more prevalent in certain states than other states or all states? A really great question. And this is something that's also kind of challenging to to pinpoint. But what we do know is that trafficking happens in cities and suburbs and in rural areas all across the United States. And that traffickers, anywhere that there are individuals who are vulnerable and, and who traffickers can exploit, trafficking can happen. And anywhere where work can happen is somewhere where labor trafficking could occur. So while it's hard to answer that question, it's important to know that trafficking is happening in, in all states. And we've received calls at the trafficking hotline from all 50 states, as well as from U.S. territories. In a previous interview, I had with someone who pointed out that in the United States, there's a bigger concern about trafficking of children into the sex industry. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. And I think that that is, first, I'll just start by sharing, that's a really important concern, but it is definitely the bigger part of our discourse here in the United States. And I think one reason for that is just that when you hear about a child being sexually abused, it's horrifying. And so that often can be where we center our attention. But at Polaris, 
which is the organization that operates the National Human Trafficking Hotline, we work on all forms of trafficking. So that's both sex and labor. And labor trafficking can kind of be hidden in, in a different way than sex trafficking is, where it's occurring at businesses that you might patronize or at the farms where people are picking our food. And so it's often more hidden in a way, and, and that's part of why it's not part of the larger discourse in in many ways. In terms of how Polaris has broken up the way people are being trafficked, either sex or labor, what are you seeing in each situation? At its core, trafficking is a crime where someone's vulnerabilities are exploited and where the trafficker, whether it's an individual or a group or a business, has some sort of power and control over the person who's being exploited. So that's sort of the common piece. And the other common piece is that the ways that that power and control are being exerted are through force, which can be physical, it can be threats of physical harm, it could be through fraud, so promising someone something, like a really great job opportunity, and then when the person arrives for that job, it's really very different than what they initially agreed to. And then the last element is coercion, which could be anything that would compel or make someone feel like they have to do something, otherwise there's going to be a pretty negative consequence. So that's the commonality. Sex trafficking we see happening a lot in industries where Maybe someone is being forced to provide sexual services out of hotels or to engage in prostitution on the street. And what we found through our data from operating the National Human Trafficking Hotline are six distinct types of sex trafficking and then 16 distinct types of labor trafficking. So you'll see that there's there's sort of more types of labor trafficking because it can happen in any industry where labor is happening. And then there are a few industries, like, for example, the illicit massage businesses, where often the folks being victimized there are being forced to provide sexual acts, but they're all in exchange for money, but they're also being labor trafficked. They're working really, really long hours. They aren't being paid. And there's a lot of the commonalities that we also see in labor trafficking. So there is a distinction, but there's also quite a bit of overlap. What about the children aspect? Who's trafficking them? Another really great question, because I think that often there's a misconception that children are being trafficked through means like being kidnapped or snatched off the street. And while we unfortunately do sometimes hear about that, what we most often hear is of children being trafficked by someone close to them, a loved one, a trusted adult, someone in their lives who knows that child enough to identify what their vulnerabilities might be. So for example, for a, a teenager, you know, they're 14 or 15 years old, maybe they're online and they're talking with a stranger that they met on Instagram and they tell the stranger, I really, I want to be famous. I want to be a singer. And so that stranger then might not just get to know the child, they might start to get to know the child's family, maybe they promise a bunch of things, and they go from being a stranger to being a trusted person to the child and maybe to others in that child's life. And then from there, kind of the terms of what the stranger has promised change, and suddenly they are threatening the the child, threatening the potential victim to cause them some sort of harm if they don't provide sexual services in exchange for money. And suddenly everything's kind of shifted. So it's that initial, even if the person is initially a stranger, they're not typically kidnapping someone off the street, but they're instead starting to build that relationship and build that trust with the victim and also people close to the victim. We also sometimes see trafficking occurring by family members, by 
other adults in the lives of children. So that's just, I think, an important distinction to make. Is that more prevalent than, let's say, organized crime, where, let's say, groups of organized people are trying to figure out who they can target and traffic? I wouldn't necessarily say more common, but what I would say is that there are really distinct methods. And often within organized crime, what we see is that the trafficking is happening within that organized criminal network. So if it's an organized criminal network or gang, if there are women involved, particularly with sex trafficking, if there are women in that situation, often that are connected with the criminal network, that's where the relationship starts and then may escalate into sex trafficking. Similar in organized crime with labor trafficking, where people are forced to engage in illicit activities like drug trafficking, it starts with someone who is adjacent or connected to the criminal organization. Whereas with familial trafficking or trafficking that occurs in a romantic relationship, that's much more one-on-one and an individual relationship that the trafficker has with the victim and maybe with others in their community. Statistically, is Polaris seeing that it's more likely to be somebody that's close to that person rather than not? Absolutely. So what we see and learn about through the trafficking hotline is that the trafficker is often someone known to the victim in some way. Maybe they start out as a stranger, but there is some relationship there as opposed to something entirely random. And how common is it for it to be a family member or a friend of the family? I don't have exact numbers on that, but I would say that it is unfortunately common because that's often where that trust piece starts. And so there are a portion of the trafficking cases that we learn about through the hotline where the exploiter is a family member, whether that's someone in the immediate family or an aunt, an uncle or a cousin who, especially with children, has access to that minor on a somewhat regular basis and is seen as a trusted person. What are the most common myths that people have about human trafficking in the United States? This idea that sex trafficking occurs through through kidnapping or through these kind of random methods. That's something that we focus on a lot that is largely a misconception. Another is that folks often think only about sex trafficking, but labor trafficking, we actually believe it occurs more than sex trafficking and is more prevalent, but just is underreported and underidentified. And then the other, which that I hear quite a bit, is A lot of folks think that human trafficking only occurs outside of the United States and that it's a problem that happens in other places. That's absolutely not true. Human trafficking is something that happens here and happens to many of the more vulnerable folks in our communities. So the question is, the perception typically is that we're importing foreigners to work, let's say, on farms or foreign nationals will come in and they don't know the culture and how to navigate around and they're being taken advantage of. Are you saying that that's just a small portion of what's going on and it's typically actually people within the community that's happening too? I would say it's both, right? Those things that you described are examples of, unfortunately, what sometimes happens to foreign nationals here in the United States. And those factors you mentioned of not understanding the culture or not speaking the language or not having information about their rights are all methods that traffickers use to control victims who are not from the United States. In addition, we also see, for example, a trafficking network where we see a lot of U.S. citizens involved when it's the labor trafficking is through traveling sales crews. So crews that are going from community to community selling magazines or candles or whatever the product might be. And 
often the individuals recruited for that type of trafficking are young adults who maybe are experiencing homelessness or who don't have a stable family situation. And they meet a recruiter who says, hey, I've got a great job for you. It's going to be really fun. We're going to travel all over the country and stay in hotels and you'll make a ton of money and it'll be really incredible. And the reality is that they're going door to door selling magazines or whatever the case may be, and they're not making very much money. Maybe they have a quota of how many magazines they have to sell a day, and it's really impossible to meet that. There's often physical abuse, withholding of food, things of that nature. So that's one example of a network or a type or form of trafficking that we see often impacting U.S. citizens, particularly young adults. For the people who are born here in the United States, are they mostly young people like you just described or is the entire range of people that are being trafficked? Can you describe a different various situation that's taking place? Sure. It really is a range and it goes back to what I mentioned about traffickers looking for a vulnerability. And so any person who has some form of vulnerability, which could be lack of stable housing, maybe struggling with substance use, not having reliable transportation or reliable access to employment. Anyone of any age who's experiencing something like that could end up or could be trafficked. And so sometimes we see for sex trafficking where adult women are recruited for a job that seems like just a a standard job where maybe they would be doing something like being a secretary or working for a company. And once they get to a location where they're supposed to work, the trafficker changes things up on them and says, you're required to perform sex acts to these people in exchange for money. If this isn't really the type of job I told you that it was, there's this big element of fraud and kind of switching things up. So we do see that. Or another form of recruitment can be through romantic relationships. And this happens to men and women and people of all gender identities of all different ages, where it starts out as a romantic relationship that feels really loving and feels really positive. And then once the trafficker has built trust with the victim, things change. And they say, actually, we don't have money to pay rent this month. I need you to have sex with these people and the money you earn will help us pay for rent. Or if there's drug use involved, maybe it'll help us pay for those drugs. And so... It really is the core piece that I think is helpful for folks to understand is that when there is vulnerability and when there's on the behalf, behalf of the victim, and that could be a systemic societal vulnerability, that could be an individual kind of unmet emotional need, whatever that case is, what traffickers do is exert power and control based on that vulnerability and exploit it. And that's kind of the core of how trafficking occurs. And it happens in lots of different industries and then in lots of different interpersonal situations. And in most cases, what is preventing the victims from escaping or seeking help? Is it the fact that they don't know the hotline exists or are there other holds over Mm -hmm. them that are preventing them from seeking help? Great question. So lack of knowledge about the hotline or about general resources for help is one component. Another really significant one is fear. And this is a question that we get asked a lot, especially in situations where maybe the victim isn't being physically restrained from leaving their place of residence or leaving the trafficker. But often the trafficker is threatening the victim to hurt them, to hurt their family, maybe to, if they've been involved in commercial sex at all, maybe to expose to their family, to their loved ones that they have been engaging in prostitution as a method of shaming that person. Threats that the trafficker is holding over someone's head are a really strong hold of keeping the victim 
in the situation and from feeling like it's not possible to get help. Sometimes also traffickers will use emotional manipulation and say, well, even if you ask for help, no one's going to believe you over me or no one will really think this happened. You don't have any proof and kind of continuing to assert that level of control. Those are all all big things. And then this other element, I think, is lack of knowledge of the systems that can help them and then also lack of trust. Calling a phone number that you don't know and sharing some of your most challenging moments can be really, really daunting and really difficult. If that's happening, if you have that fear on the back of also experiencing severe abuse and trauma and receiving threats, it can be really difficult to take the step to ask for help and to be ready to leave. And then the concern is once they call, what kind of support can they receive and can it happen right away? Great question. The National Human Trafficking Hotline is available 24-7, 365 days a year. And individuals can call us, text us. We have an online chat feature as well as send an email or fill out an online report. And from there, they'll work with a hotline advocate who they're extensively trained. We'll talk with that person about what their options are. And so we'll assess for safety. You know, are they safe right now? How long are they going to be safe? How long do they have to talk? And then the next thing we'll talk about is what are you hoping that we can help with? And there are two buckets of of ways in which the human trafficking hotline can provide support. One is through connection with social service providers. So that might be a shelter, a safe place to stay, counseling, legal assistance, things of that nature. Another option, if the person is an adult and and they're looking to report to law enforcement, we can help them facilitate a report to law enforcement who are trained in human trafficking. That could be something that they do at any point in their, their journey of exit. If what they're experiencing has really high levels of danger and they want help from law enforcement right away, that's also something the trafficking hotline can help facilitate. And then one of the things that's not in those two buckets, but that we do quite a lot, is talking with victims and survivors who call the trafficking hotline about ways to safely exit and brainstorming ways to stay safe. And we call this safety planning. It's really common in fields where people are working with individuals who have experienced violence. And that's really to start to talk with the person about what their choices are for leaving when they are ready. Because all those things I mentioned when you asked about what keeps people in trafficking situations, those don't automatically go away when you decide to call the hotline. So a piece of the way that the hotline provides support is by talking through those different things and talking through maybe the threats that someone has received and and making a plan to help them safely leave in a way that works for them, which sometimes involves law enforcement, sometimes does not, depending on the nuances of the situation. What about the fact that it comes down to having support and resources? How do they get those aspects that's going to allow them to basically free themselves? What's great about the National Human Trafficking Hotline is that we really try to reflect in our system all of the important resources that are available where someone is located. So they, if they call us from, say, North Carolina and they need a safe place to stay, we're able to look up in our system, you know, what are the resources for housing and shelter for trafficking victims in North Carolina. And then we'll work with that person to directly connect them to whatever that organization is. 
when someone reaches out to this central number, that we then can help them connect into whatever is locally available to them. And if maybe there's not a ton of local resources, figuring out what's the closest and how can we get that person to safely access that resource, whatever that might take. So that piece of serving as a connector is is really important and can help kind of close that gap. Are there certain places where these places don't exist or there are very limited resources that can be accessed? Because it's a matter of Mm -hmm. having access, right, to resources that are close by. I'm just curious whether all the states are providing some kind of safe house and support for those who may be in need. In areas that are more rural or where things are more spread out, often, even when there are resources, it can take a long time to physically get from where the person is being exploited to where the resource is available. But various states and counties have their own protocol and preferred response of, okay, if someone is being trafficked in this area, how do we make sure that we can get them that resource? And one of the things we sometimes see through the trafficking hotline is that First, we want to address the immediate need of making sure that person is safe. And so that might mean that if there's not a trafficking-specific shelter nearby, that first we'll connect the, the victim with another resource that can provide a safe place to stay, so like a domestic violence shelter or a homeless shelter, and then we'll work to connect the victim and wherever they're staying with the closest trafficking specific resource. So then that way, all of those parties can be in communication and can figure out how do we then get this person from point A to point B to really receive the wraparound support and and trafficking specific trauma-informed support that, that, that they deserve. Services for survivors of sex trafficking, there are a lot more shelter type resources, particularly for female survivors of sex trafficking than there are for male survivors and also for survivors of labor trafficking. So sometimes those resources can be a little bit more difficult to find or a little bit more few and far between. That kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, where the dominant narrative can often inform what resources exist. And so when we talk more about sex trafficking and there's this momentum around supporting survivors of sex trafficking, that's really important. But the momentum and discourse around Supporting survivors of labor trafficking is also important because that can help mobilize resources and ensure that there are options for those survivors when they're ready to exit. Do many of them return after they seek help to their original situation? We do sometimes see this and where someone may exit their situation and receive support. And then for whatever reason, whether it's the trafficker continues to threaten them or if they have a a strong intimate relationship with the trafficker and that hasn't been healed or addressed, they they may choose to return to the trafficking situation. And in situations of abuse, that is unfortunately something that that is common in all types of abuse, not just human trafficking. One of the things about the trafficking hotline is that we are here for people at any stage. And so if we talked to someone two years ago and got them connected with resources, and then we hear from them again tomorrow, and it turns out that since we last spoke, they went back to their trafficker, we're going to approach that from a place of non-judgment and, and finding out, you know, what is it that you need right now? How can we help you in this moment? I think that's a really important piece to recognize, too, is that that absolutely does happen. And rec- recognizing that that's normal, unfortunately. And so how do we support people who maybe have reentered a situation in getting ready to leave again? Is that more common or frequent in sex trafficking or is it the same in labor trafficking as well? 
We do sometimes see this in labor trafficking, too. And one of the challenges is, particularly if someone professional skill set or always been in the industry where they were trafficked, once they start to receive services and support, they may go back to working in the industry where they were exploited, particularly if it's an industry like I think agriculture is a really good example where the protections and regulations for protecting workers are particularly, I think, foreign national workers who are here on temporary work visas are not as strong as they could be. And so that means that that person could potentially be exploited again, working for a different company or by a different trafficker or by a different bad actor who recognizes that same vulnerability. That does happen in sex trafficking, but but also we have seen it in labor. How do you spot when someone is perhaps in that situation? Would it make sense to keep your eyes open in certain sectors versus others for this? This is a really good question and something we talk about a lot at Polaris. And what we found over the years of operating the trafficking hotline is that the best way to recognize areas in your life where you may be interacting with victims of trafficking or to identify people who might need help is to think about situations where you as an individual have proximity and context to a situation. So I'll give you an example of what that means. Say you go to a restaurant as a patron, you go there to eat. You might be interacting with the wait staff. Maybe you see some of the people who work in the kitchen or who are doing dishwashing or whatever the case may be, but you don't really interact with them as much as you do with the the front of the house staff. In that case, you might have proximity to workers who are being exploited, but you don't really have enough context to say, I know that what's what's going on in the back of this restaurant is labor trafficking or labor exploitation. But say you work as a hostess at the restaurant part-time, and so you're there a few days a week, you are getting to know some of the other workers, you talk to the dishwashers when you bring dishes back to the kitchen, you see them in the locker room, and you realize, you know, this one guy is always here. He, No matter what day of the week I pick up a shift, he's always working. One time I saw him sleeping in the locker room, and then when I talked to him a little more, he said, you know, he hasn't been paid in a few weeks. And then he told me that the kitchen manager has his passport. All of a sudden, even though this is the, the hostess's part-time job, they're there a few days a week, and they're not super close with this employee who's being exploited, they have proximity to the victim, and they have a ton of context to know that this isn't just, oh, a bad work situation. They have enough information to be pretty concerned. What I like to emphasize is that all of us as members of, of our various communities have some situations where we might have proximity and we might have context or where we have both. We do a lot of training for truck drivers who they're spending a lot of time on the road and at places like truck stops and they know what's normal in that context and what's sort of standard and where maybe someone could be being exploited and they have proximity and context in at truck stops where they have expertise. Hotel staff have proximity and context in their own industry where they work. What we really encourage people to do is to think about places where you are intersecting and interacting with individuals and maybe know enough about their situation to recognize that it could be sex or labor trafficking. And this is different from, I think, some of the previous messaging that the anti-trafficking field has shared, where we've talked about 
knowing the signs and if you see someone who looks like they've been exploited to reach out for help because it's really hard it's almost impossible to look across a room or public transportation and see someone and say oh that person what they're experiencing is trafficking maybe they're having a bad day maybe they are experiencing some kind of abuse but we don't know what type of abuse that is it's really difficult to know without that proximity and context exactly what's going on for that person so it sounds like if you're really familiar with a particular situation, you'll be able to identify easily that there's something off. You need to then zero in on whether there's something going on. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a situation where you could call the hotline and our hotline advocates can talk with you about that situation, maybe brainstorm safe ways to try to pass the hotline number along to the workers, looking at what are some possible access points and intervention points for the people that you're worried about. And and then we can go from there. But you're absolutely right. You're spot on. What can we do to end human sex trafficking as a society? This is a, a big question. And there's definitely not a simple answer. At Polaris, our approach is twofold. We really are working to reshape the systems that make trafficking possible and profitable through looking upstream at what are some of the things that enable trafficking to happen. And then the other portion of our work is through the trafficking hotline responding to trafficking that's already happened, that's already going on. As an individual, it can be hard to figure out what is your own individual role in stopping and ending sex and labor trafficking. However, at a societal level, Polaris really believes that when we start to work on eliminating systems that allow trafficking to happen in legal industries, that will be a really big step towards ending trafficking. And one of the first steps is just to hold big industries accountable for their actions and thinking about what are some strong legislations that can be tailored to address abuses in those industries. And we think that will be a really impactful step. And what you're referring to is when large corporations are using labor that may be trafficked and they're not really paying attention to who's working on their products or who's picking their lettuce. That's what you're talking about, right? The fact that they're just not really verifying or auditing how the product's getting to them or being made for them. Correct. Yeah, really looking at supply chains and and getting a sense of where things are coming from and where products are being made and how they're being made and how the workers are are, are being treated and what if they know about their rights. All of those things and and systems of accountability are really important. Do you think there's an easier way to solve the sex trafficking, especially of minors? I think one of the things that that can be done to address that is really education for parents and caregivers and also for children about, especially we see a lot of recruitment happening for sex trafficking online. And so talking about online safety, talking about ways to be a trusted adult for a child in your life, whether or not they're they're your own child or someone that you interact with at a place like a school and creating an environment of trust where a kid knows that if something doesn't feel right or that if someone's talking to them in a way about things that are private or whatever the case may be, that they can go to someone, that they can ask for help and that we're helping kids in a language that is accessible for them and that's appropriate for them learn when they might need to get an adult involved and then also helping those adults identify when this might be recruitment or grooming for sex trafficking and making sure that they know what to do if that happens. I think that that can really help us address 
address the challenge of sex trafficking, particularly for children. Thank you for raising our awareness on human and sex trafficking in the U.S. And thank you for joining me on Spark today, Megan. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Kelly.